Welcome to Scaling Alberta Businesses, Innovate MRU's podcast that focuses on the startup and scale-up stories of Alberta-born companies. I'm Ray DePaul, the Director of the Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Mount Royal University. On this episode, I'm honoured to be speaking with Zach Hartley. Zach is the co-founder of Burgundy Oak, a craft furniture company that's gone from mom's garage to a million-dollar business in just a few years. So I love to start these conversations with a bit of an origin story. So can you give me some sense of how Burgundy Oak got started? Yeah, so Burgundy Oak um, really goes back a couple of years. My family used to vacation in British Columbia in the summers, and so we'd all kind of go out there with the family. And uh, we stayed at a cabin, and food was a big thing. We'd go out to different festivals. We'd grill at home. We'd do a bunch of different things. And so we went to the Penticton Rib Festival one year, and the food was so good there, we decided we wanted to try and do smoked ribs back at the cabin. So we needed to build a smoker, and we didn't want to go out and just buy one, so we decided to try and make one out of a wine barrel. We were in the middle of wine country, so we figured, let's give it a shot. We cut the top off so you could access the inside and put your food in and a small door in the bottom so you could insert charcoal. And over the course of a couple years, we used it every summer and the food turned out amazing. One day I was sitting there and we had just finished up a meal for about 16 people and I thought, wow, you know what, maybe there's something we can do here. So I bought one more barrel, I brought it back to Calgary and I converted it into another smoker in my mom's garage. I put one photo on Instagram and the editor at CTV News, Bob Summer, saw it and he sent his journalist, Kevin Fleming, to come in and do a story on us. And so at the time, it was just me and one barrel and I pretended to have a company and, and some operations and, uh, and some employees. They came in and they did a story on us and it aired three times that night. And by the next morning, we had sold five smokers. And so we had basically completely faked uh, the whole company. We set up the website, photos, everything, got it up and running and started bringing in some orders. And at that point, I was literally just one dude with one smoker and only one barrel in my mom's garage going about to go into my fourth year at university. And so about a week before school started, I convinced my mom to drive me out to BC. I put $1,500 worth of barrels on my credit card, came back, built the barrels in my spare time, finished them off before school started. And uh, I had a couple extra barrels to start the company, and and it just kind of slowly grew from there. So that was kind of the first steps. And then uh, I met my co-founders, Austin Torin and Nick White. And uh, ever since then, we put the company through Mount Royal. I went through that fourth year at Mount Royal. We graduated, and now it's been quite a roller coaster ride ever since. So how does that feel? I mean, are you excited as this stuff starting to take off, or are you? is this just like, ah, it'll run for a while and who knows what happens? Yeah, you know, it's crazy because especially with this, I didn't set out and say, okay, I'm going to start a business. I literally just made one smoker and it kind of evolved from there. And then we've just ran with it. So when I started out and a couple months into this, I said, okay, what's the end goal here? Or what's the like big dream? And we passed that a year and a half in. And so ever since then, it's about, okay, what's next and how how can we turn this into something that can produce an income for Calgarians, can make a unique and quality product, and is something that we can grow and scale up into a major company that we can do very well off of, or that we can sell at some point, or that we can pass on to uh, the next generation. So it started off not necessarily as a business idea, but as something that just gathered traction and we ran with it. And and so far, it feels pretty good. Um, we hire 12 different people. We have 12 employees, all Calgarians. We've got four different partners. We do over a million dollars in sales, and it all started literally from mom's garage, a little bit bigger than this podcast booth right now. So nice. that's definitely a cool feeling and a feeling of self-accomplishment. Tell me about kind of the first wave of sales. So you had these sales that came out of the 
the CTV yeah. stuff. But then, then what happened? Yeah, so we got that kind of first blitz, and that was basically just due to um, to a news segment that aired on on uh, CTV News, and that got us our first five sales. We closed those out, and then after that, that was the challenge. Now it's like, okay, you've got something here, you've got a business, but how do you get that next wave of sales? And for us, we didn't have a big marketing budget. We didn't have a big online presence. So what we did was we went to markets and trade shows, and we literally pounded the pavement. We went to every single Christmas show you could possibly think of because we had started in the summer, finally got it up and running going into that Christmas season. So we went to about three or four Christmas shows and we were trying to sell, at the time it was wine barrel smokers in the middle of winter in Canada. So that was a tricky thing, but we did okay there. And then by the time we got to the summer, we were basically booked into every food festival, every wine festival, every event of bigger than 10,000 people. We were in the touring rib festival. We went to barbecue on the boat. We were basically at every consumer facing event in Southern Alberta that you could possibly go to. And what it allowed us to do was to get out there, get our product in front of people, figure out what that sales conversion looks like. What are the factors that people need to check off in order to purchase this product? What values and qualities are they actually looking for in a product like that? And how do we focus our marketing to demonstrate those aspects? And so that first year was literally just pounding the pavement, trying to get out there as much as possible, and then picking up and figuring out what was it that the consumers valued and focusing on that so that when we approached stores later on or we grew to bigger trade shows, we knew what the sales process was. And I know a lot of startups want to jump past the, those grinding moments. And I think that's probably how you would describe that. And, yeah. you know, you probably talked to hundreds of potential customers and face-to-face. Oh, at every trade show. Like okay, we, so yeah, thousands. Like we did. So at Spruce Meadows, it was three weekends. It was three days long. And probably every day I pitched pitched our product 100 times. So without a doubt, that was an absolute grind. And, and But that's yeah. the thing is, in those early stages, when you're actually in those face-to-face conversations, you realize what your customers want, what they don't want, what matters to them, and how they can react to your price point. So you can learn all these different aspects. And those, that's just the start of it. But you learn all these different aspects that literally shape the next three to five years of your business just because you had those face-to-face interactions and you're out there grinding and pounding the pavement. So that is so valuable because the number of entrepreneurs that come out with a product and then think it's the greatest thing on on this earth and and just want to go with an online strategy and, and try and blow it up, like it's cool and some people have probably done it, but there's a very small likelihood that you get it right on the first go. And that was one of the things that we did was we changed our products all the time. Like in that first year, we launched compared to the product line one year later, it was, a, it was a similar construct and the same strategy, but it was completely different products. We figured out what aspects actually mattered, what didn't, and what we were missing to make that conversion of face-to-face sales a lot easier on our salespeople. And I see a lot of early CEOs wanting to just hire a salesperson to do that stuff because it really isn't fun. What do you think is the value of having you personally, the founder and CEO, having those hundreds, if not thousands of interactions? How did that feedback loop that you personally got make its way into products and into strategy? So you bring up a really good point. There's a lot of days where it's not fun. If you're out on the road grinding or if you're at a trade show and you just have to pitch, it's not fun. But The big thing is if you have your employees there or your sales team there as the CEO, you can't be discouraged about that or you can't be upset about that or down about that because that completely rubs off to everybody else. So that was that was one thing that I learned really quick. Um, The second thing is, is everybody in your company needs to be able to sell. 
everybody in your company needs to be bought in and completely engaged in your product and able to sell. So at Burgundy Oak, for instance, we have the Calgary Stampede coming up. It's 11 days of sales, and I think we've got seven guys working the shift. We've got guys from our shop coming in, guys from the warehouse, so a little bit of everything because we want everybody involved. The value there, though, is absolutely huge, getting those first face-to-face interactions with the customer to see what pivots you need to make, what changes you need to make, and how to structure your sales process so that then you can give that to your sales team and and have them successful is huge. We also got really lucky. My co-founders, Nick White, came from sort of a sales background and a retail management background, so he's done a phenomenal job with regards to our sales process and picking up new customers. So that first phase, really, it's direct selling. You're at trade shows, you're at festivals, you're selling directly. When did you start to look at retail as a potential channel for your products? Yeah, so the big thing was we went that direct-to-consumer and that direct-to-selling route so we can prove the market. We have to say, okay, people are actually going to buy this and people are actually going to and willing to spend money on this product. And if you have that, then you have a couple of different options. So we looked at it and we said, okay, what is the best path to market penetration. And there's a lot of ways to do it by direct selling and going to consumers and going just face to face, but it's a really difficult thing to scale up. For instance, trade shows in Calgary are really easy for us to do because everybody lives in Calgary and and I can take a trailer and just drop off all the product. But if we go to a show in Toronto or we go to Edmonton, it's, uh, it's a much more difficult thing to do, especially on the direct consumer route. So we looked at it as what is the best way to penetrate this market? And we said, well, the uh, the big movers and the big sellers in this industry are the big stores, home hardware, co-op, Canadian Tire, stores like that that can move smokers like we sold in the old days and a lot of furniture and decor like what we sell right now. And so wholesale was an avenue that we wanted to test out. So what we did was we took our products with the best margins and we allowed them to be purchased by wholesalers. And we approached a couple of stores around Calgary and the surrounding areas. Stonewaters in Canmore was actually one of the first stores to pick up our products. And uh, they picked it up, they purchased it, they carried them in their stores and they started to slowly move through their products. And I'm really happy to say that three and a half years later, they're still placing orders with us every two or three months. And so what's really nice about that is we can go through a little bit of work to acquire a customer, but that wholesale customer is going to still place orders with us three years down the road. And we don't have to spend more money to acquire that customer. We just need to maintain it and improve it. And so that model and that scalability has been something that we focused on a lot more than the direct consumer route that a lot of other companies have gone with similar products. And I imagine it's picking the right channel at the right time. If, if I recall, you had a very early conversation with Canadian Tire where I, I believe you were told not yet. Yeah, so timing, like you said, is absolutely crucial. Um, when we started out, we were building in very small volumes. And so our margins weren't fantastic. They were good enough to get us by and keep us going, but they weren't great. As we grew and as the large as the volumes grew, our margins increased and we were able to sustain a little bit longer and a little bit better. Now, the conversation with Canadian Tire was really interesting, though, because it was kind of an eye-opener. We had gotten an introduction from them or to them through Mount Royal back in the day, and we got on the phone with them, and we got into it and explained our product, told them our value proposition, and they had a lot of interest, and then they started to ask a couple of questions about supply and EDI and being able to fulfill the orders and being able to handle returns and what the warranties look like and things along those lines, and and it got to the point where we realized that we weren't fully prepared to start servicing a customer like Canadian Tire. 
And so a big box store like Canadian Tire was probably off our radar at the time because we didn't have the capacity, the production, or the back-end logistics to help fulfill that order. Now, a, a single direct-to-consumer order, that's no problem for us. And then when we started selling to a store like Stonewaters in Canmore, they would buy small little decor items and place one to $2,000 orders on fairly simple display pieces. So there was no warranty or, or quality issues that we really had to worry about. So it was a little bit of a different um, model and we really used that model of the Stonewaters um, to move forward and so Stonewaters is a small little store in Canmore a couple thousand square feet but it's considered a small maybe medium-sized furniture decor store and what's really great about those is they don't have huge requirements like Canadian Tire does they don't place massive orders they just place small consistent orders but the best part of it was that they paid up front and mm. so from a direct-to-consumer order where we'd have to go out and fight for every single order and find new customers, we found these small and medium-sized furniture and decor stores that would pick up our product. They'd pay us up front. They'd place consistent orders. It was never think anything crazy, so we could maintain the production and slowly ramp up. And so our business really kind of evolved. We started out with that direct-to-consumer route where we sold the first five smokers, and then we sold through trade shows. And then it slowly evolved based on timing and margin to pick up small and medium-sized furniture stores because it helped us grow and it helped us scale. And then at the later stage and sort of uh, today in our company, we're starting to be able to fulfill some of those bigger box orders now. So we've talked a lot about the sales side of this, demand, generating demand. Talk a bit about the challenges of actually fulfilling that demand. Yeah. And so that was, uh, that's a big challenge, especially um, in our order systems. For instance, we pick up a new customer and we have no idea if they're going to place a $1,000 order or a $30,000 order Um, because some of them we never walked into their store. So it's really, really interesting. We had a customer recently place a pretty large order with us and it's a challenge. Um, this one had a little bit of custom work, so we had to completely shut down the shop, shut down all of production to uh, basically adapt everything for this order and send it out. And so what what becomes challenging is lining up all the different aspects of the business. So for instance, we have barrel purchasing where I need to make sure I have the inventory for it. We've got manufacturing, we've got our warehouse, and we've got sales. And so if sales comes in and goes to a trade show and has a big giant month and then brings in a big order like that, it's a really difficult thing for manufacturing because I have four guys that work full time, but it's fairly consistent output. It's really difficult for me to increase or decrease output in the shop without laying guys off or hiring on new ones. But our sales cycle is dependent on big orders or a big trade show that we go to. So fulfilling that order is definitely tricky. I mean, there's probably countless nights that we've spent 12, 14, 16 hours at the shop working away just trying to fill an order because we're behind or because we've got something big coming up or we've got a trade show that it needs to be out for. So there's a lot of times where unfortunately because we're a startup and because we're running really fast and because we're we're just trying to make sales and, and keep it going, we haven't always planned things out and so we get stuck in pinches where we're working 16 hour days to try and fill an order and unfortunately that happens more than I'd like to admit. So... <laughs> And I guess you also have this uh, added complexity that that your raw materials come as full barrels, and then you turn those into different types of products. Yeah. And you don't necessarily control the demand on all those. You know, you, you might want to have more tops of barrels, but you can't get a top without all the sides. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like a rancher, right? If you have so many cows, but everybody wants a T-bone, what do you do with the rest of the cow, right? It's kind of um, a tricky thing. So. We've, we've managed that a little bit by doing sales. So for instance, if I have a ton of one type of product, we'll do a sale on that to kind of move through it and even that out. But 
what I have a real challenge on is all the barrels are different. So for instance, some of the barrels have a different curve to them, a different height, a different length. And so my biggest challenge is that every raw material I work with is different. So all of our tools, all of our jigs, everything we do is custom set up for these barrels, which is a really difficult thing for quality standards because you can't say that this needs to be X width if all every raw material that goes in is totally different. And I've been trying to figure out what other business has that problem and I'm struggling to figure that out, at least in the woodworking world, because um, it's a challenge. Like I, I bring in barrels and the outside of the barrel is completely dry. It'll be five or 6% humidity inside the wood, but the inside will be 20%. And then I have to let it dry, I have to treat it a certain way. So the barrel aspect is definitely a challenge. Now I imagine the good news in that is that these are craft products. These are one ofs, these are one of a kind, which I, I imagine is a positive on sales. Definitely. And that's that's one of the strategic advantages. So it's one of the things that really sets us apart and it's something that we focus on. So every product at Burgundy Oak is completely handmade in Calgary. It's a Canadian made product. It's made with woodworkers right here in the city. It's made from a real wine barrel and it's made in Canada. It's made by us. Um, so we take a lot of pride in that and we give a certificate of authenticity with every product that we make as well. And then just recently, we signed a licensing deal with Jack Daniels. And so we're bringing in their barrels straight from Lynchburg, Tennessee. We're bringing them into Calgary and then doing the exact same thing and selling those products across Canada. You've spoken highly of the team you have. And part of scaling is about making sure you got the right people on, in the right positions. Can you talk a bit about the unique skill sets that each of them bring? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that one, Ray, because my team, you, if you saw us all in a room, you'd be like, oh, my God, these guys are all completely different. And I think that's one of the most unique things about us. So myself, I am uh, like to think I'm fairly level-headed and a little bit humble. Um, Austin Stilly works in our warehouse, and the guy has the absolute most amazing work ethic like I've ever seen in my life. And he's 10 times more humble and quiet than everybody else in the room, and he's the hardest worker in the room every single day. And it's absolutely amazing, and it works great for trying to get orders out. Nick White is completely different than Austin. He's not quiet, he's not necessarily humble, and he's got a, uh, a large personality, and he's probably not gonna get his hands dirty very often. So totally different personality, but he is our absolute best salesman by far. He's a better salesman than me, but it's his personality is completely different. It's super outgoing, it's super energetic, and he has the confidence to say this product's the best in the world and this is why you need it. And he has no problem saying that to anybody. And then Torn Hoffman is our, our kind of other partner. He's a little bit on the quieter side, but he's super creative. He's always got something kind of in the back of his head. He's always working on something. And the marketing campaigns, the videos, and the cinematography that he's put together for Burgundy Oak is a lot of the reason that we've been able to reach out and get the recognition and the partnerships that we have so far. It's mostly because of the material that he's put together. So if we're sitting here five years from now and things have gone as well as you'd hoped they could, they could go. Mm -hmm. um, and you look back, any thoughts on what some of the momentous moments were that got you there? Yeah. Um, like the first one and the first decision you really need to make is choose your team. Like make sure that the partner you go into business with or the people that you go into business with are there for the long run and are there for the right reasons and that you all have the same expectations because the last thing you want is to get six months in or a year into something and somebody falls off the boat and wants something ridiculous for their equity or for their time put in. And so um, the biggest, most important thing is choose your team extremely wisely and make sure everybody has the same expectations. And once you've got that laid out, 
then it just comes down to execution and making sure that the new people you bring onto your team, their expectations fall in line with, with everybody else. Do you think there's, you know, the role of the Jack Daniels relationship, other relationships, major retail, like global expansion, like what, what do you think is going to get you where, where you need to be in five years? So in five years, I think our business model is going to change. Right now, we have a couple hundred customers that do um, well with our product, but I do think that over the next three years, that model and that market's going to change. It's either going to get saturated or there's going to be smaller little guys that can come in at a better price than me or a lower price because they build it in a garage and don't have overhead. So I do think that that selling to medium and small size stores business model is going to change. I think where we're going to end up is we're going to have 10 to 15 major customers that make up the majority of our business. And I think it's going to be a mix of um, products like cabinets and tables and things like that that we do right now. But I also think it's going to be a couple of new products. So like you said, we're, we're fairly innovative and we're always working on the next product line. And so right now we're working on a commercial line of products made from lighting, made from the metal bands of the barrels. So all the barrels have bands that hold them together. So we're doing a line of lighting made from those bands. We're also working on some commercial products. So a, uh, a wine room in a restaurant, a feature wall in a hotel. We're doing panels where you can cover that entire wall in wine barrels. So there's a couple different expansion opportunities for Burgundy Oak. And I think that over the next three years, as we test out those opportunities, we'll see which ones kind of rise to the top. Having our own facility really allows us to test these different models. And so we've seen success in selling products to stores. We've seen success in selling direct to consumer, but it's not a large portion of our business at all. The lighting is going to be something that we're trying out, but we've also seen success in renting barrels. So for instance, I store two or 300 barrels in inventory at all times at our location. And last year we started renting them out to stampede, to weddings, to special events to corporate parties and just from raw materials sitting in inventory we started renting them out at a third of their cost per day and last year we did ten thousand dollars in revenue and rentals and so far we're projecting for about a 50 percent increase so there's a very large amount of business models that we can tackle other than just building products and selling them and I think over the next couple of years as we test out each of those business models and build out the successes I think it'll diversify our revenue a little bit but it'll decrease our customer number and increase the size of the company overall. So was there a moment during this process that it became clear that I'm onto something here this thing actually could be a success? The first time that it really became clear that this was something was, I think we were at Spruce Meadows trade show. It was a Christmas market. And uh, we were standing there pitching direct direct to the consumer, just trying to get ready for Christmas and to sell some products so that everybody could take it home uh, before the holidays. And I remember working the booth for an entire weekend and the whole weekend people were coming up saying, wow, this is the most amazing thing we've ever seen. This is so cool. We love what you're doing. And uh, I think that weekend we we probably did our best number of sales as well. And I think everything just kind of came together. We had a good sales weekend. We had amazing feedback from our customers. Christmas was stacking up really well financially and the team was running really well. And I think it was kind of at that point where it wasn't an instant, but it was like, okay, we've got something here. We've got traction. We've got momentum. We've got an awesome team. We've got a good product. Now it's just about execution and scaling up and making sure that we can do this properly. And so I think it was, it probably came at a trade show face-to-face with consumers seeing validation of what we were doing. I think that was it is more so than anything for the first year, it was kind of a question of, 
could I write myself my own paycheck with this? Could I actually make this happen? And probably by Christmas of next year, that's what we were doing. And it kind of felt like, yeah, this is an actual business. We turned it from a startup in mom's garage and a student at Mount Royal to an actual functioning business that can make money, can write my own paycheck, can build a team and a group of friends that, that'll be lifelong and and a product that we all believe in. I think actually right around the same time, Nick had closed a thirty dollars or $35,000 sale to home hardware. So I think it was probably like a couple of things that all came together at that Christmas where it was like, yeah, there's traction here, let's run with it. Find out more about the Burgundy Oak journey from startup to scale-up, including their experience on Dragon's Den in the next episode of Innovate MRU's Scaling Alberta Businesses. This episode was produced by Joanne Horwood and Ben Goodman, and the music provided by Broke for Free. I'm Ray DePaul. Thanks for listening.